The Water Cooler is a live storytelling event performed monthly at Bats Theatre in Wellington. This month's theme was I Know What You Did Last Summer. A small reminder that the stories were recorded live, so the language and themes may not be for everyone. Our storyteller, Lucy Jane Revel, is a writer and policy advisor. She was born and raised in Wellington, New Zealand. Lucy blogs about Wellingtonians and Wellington life on her blog, theresidence.co.nz. This is her story. Can I please get you all to put your hands together for Lucy Jane Revel? <laughs> welcome, welcome, Lucy. Come on over. Okay. So this is Lucy, and Lucy works for the Ministry of Justice. Ministry of Justice. Civil and human rights. Oh, human rights. Human rights. Good. We need those. <laughs> um, and also, Lucy writes for a blog called The Residence, which she interviewed me on, and then I was like, hey, I like you. You come and work for me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm very, very excited about that. I've also kind of known Lucy a bit throughout the years. Eh? Just, we got drunk in the heart. Yeah, we got drunk in the heart a couple of times. Um, and so, yeah, what's kind of, what can we expect from you tonight? Would you little, would you so, my, my story tonight, Alice, is like when you are at school and you feel like such a loser because the girls aren't inviting you to the party, you're not mm -hmm. friends with the cold boys, gossip boys aren't even worth <laughs> looking at, and you're like, what's, what's there for me? And then you get a job and you meet someone and you realise, I can be friends with people of different ages. That's great. That's and it's awesome. like this whole mind-blowing concept okay. and about finding those heroes in summertime. Sounds good. All right. So let's just fit you, fit you up. Thank you good? You good there? Yep. Okay, good. All right. And do you want to take that? No, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. All right. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see. Thank you, everyone. As just a precursor, I'd like to add, um, do try and check out my blog. It's www.theresidence.co.nz. It's about Wellingtonians and Wellington life. It's my second go. I did a first go in 2012, but everyone knows about bloggers. You start, you do a couple of posts, and then you kind of get occupied by other stuff. So um, this is kind of me going, hey, I'm um, giving it another shot. But this is a story about Wellington. If you're a Wellingtonian, I'm sure you can relate to it. We don't have a beach summer culture in the same way that somewhere like Tauranga does. You know, you don't go down to the beach at Oriental Parade and just like strip off in your speedos and you're like, yeah, see me, because it's cold and you get like fribble. <laughs> it's, it's tough. But um, let me start the story because this is a story that'll be a little bit different from everyone else's, I expect. It's a story about finding your heroes. I'm not a child of summer, I'm a child of winter but I always wanted to be. When I was young, I looked for someone to put on a pedestal. I was looking for a hero. That hero was summer. Summer meant you were cool. You had a nice tan. The sun shined on you. So when a guy in a flat cap told me when I was 17 that I didn't seem 17, I felt like summer changed me forever. Kids became cool in summer. I dream of some of the way I see it in a Coca-Cola ad, the flat stomach, the red bikini, lots of friends surrounding me. I feel like Summer is a popular person in high school who I just want to be friends with but isn't interested in me. My parents tell me when we're driving far north for the summer, well, you'll make friends on holiday. There's heaps of people up there. It's Christmas Day. We're driving 12 hours in a car and all we have is egg sandwiches. Uh, I try and console myself by thinking I might turn into a beach babe. What a story that would be for term one. 
I am Billabong. <laughs> but all I find when I get there is empty paradise. I find it an isolated kind of summer, full of promises but delivering little. I want friends. I want adventure. I want boys. Heck, I'd even settle for a horse round ride, ride around the back paddock if somebody let me. Instead, I walk at midnight down to the deserted beach in my best miniskirt and I call my friends from the waterfront alone in the dark. They're all celebrating up raucously in Wellington, having the time of their lives on Oriental Parade. I want to tell them exciting tales, tales of adventure. Instead, the highlight of my summer has been going down to the fish and chip shop and watching the guy roll scoops of ice cream with his bronze tanned arms. Then things get worse. The girls at school start to mutter things I haven't heard of before, but in time, I know their real meaning. Words like Papamoa, the mount, <laughs> camping. I know what these words really mean to me. They mean solitude, being left behind, not part of the gang. But even though I may have lied and told them that I kissed a pro surfer once, I never get invited. The words of Brittany ring in my ears. I'm not a girl but not yet a woman. <laughs> that year, I clocked snake on my 2280, pretending to text back to invitations that never came through. I blocked out summer, and I spent my time in the dark playing The Sims 2. <laughs> the next year, I am 16. I get a job at a supermarket. I have money in my back pocket. And I meet a friend, Patty. She will be my friend. She will be my hero. She's 18. We birthed the bakery together. And she's lived in New York. She is my first summer hero, an archangel of music and psychedelic art. And most importantly, she likes me. We spend hours drawing portraits of Lou Reed on the bakery bags in between baguettes and fitness loaf. She tells me she took magic mushrooms once and thought her boyfriend was dead. I basically have to acknowledge this is the coolest story I have ever heard. <laughs> Patty suggests that we swap mixtapes. I don't want to tell her that my iPod is a mix of Pink, Avril Lavigne, very old Eminem, and who can forget Evanescence. <laughs> I decide to burn a CD from a UK music magazine for the contribution to the swap. It has a respectable mix of Death Cab for Cutie and Wilco. The CD was from an issue called Summer Gold. <laughs> In return, she gave me Janis Joplin. She gave me Bob Dylan. She gave me The Velvet Underground and Devandra Barnhart. Suddenly, I was awakened to a whole new genre I never had heard of. In 2006, as far as I was aware, there was basically only indie, uh, sorry, there was only basically emo, rap, and pop. This was something called indie. I had never heard of indie. Hipsters didn't exist back then. In fact, I didn't know anyone with a beard who drank craft beer. <laughs> what at the, how the times have changed. <laughs> 
I kept that mixtape from Paddy, and it spoke to me for years. I want you, Bob sang. I want you. I want you. So bad. I wanted someone to want me. But most of all, I wanted me to want me. Paddy left and faded, as summers do. A few years on, and I had moved up in the world. Surfers are no longer cool. It is at this time when girls are stealing their sisters' fake IDs to go to the establishment at the weekend. <laughs> I met my main summer hero, Jackie. I am 17. She's 22. We work together at a fashionable clothes shop in town. On the day I start work, she looks incredible. Her eyes are made up in a blue, smoky eyeshadow. Her hair is cut in a modern bob. She wears a Jackie Onassis-style blazer and matching skirt and the biggest smile. Hello, she says. She gives me a nickname, Goosey. I feel the sun light beams on me at last. And she asks me to her 23rd birthday party and I think I will just die of happiness. I ask my friend Haley to come with me because she is the only one who is cool enough who can handle this in this kind of circumstance. <laughs> Haley, will you come with me? I ask. Sure, she says, like she does it all the time. The party, as it turns out, is even cooler than I thought. <laughs> it is a new town. I have never been to a party in Newtown. <laughs> when we arrive, Haley recognises one of her brother's friends outside on the porch and starts talking to him immediately. She greets him with a familiarity. I go upstairs. Jackie sees me and runs over. Goosey, she cries. You came! A boy in a flat cap makes chat with me. <clears throat> you don't look 17, he says. I die again. <laughs> Suddenly, not being out on a fake ID at establishment or going to Rhythm and Vines or Baywatch seems like a big deal at all. That summer, I dwell in the happiness of feeling protected by a prodigal sister. When that boy in the flat cap never calls me back, it doesn't make sense. But Jackie tells me, these boys, they all think they're Casanovas. Suddenly, I can brush off the hurt with rhetoric and poetry. They st I stay with her and her flatmate, who works at Sweet Mother's Kitchen, uh, <laughs> over summer. In the daytime, I work the shop floor. I find myself living off apples, vogels, and beer. I lose my puppy fat. I wear makeup properly for the first time. One day, I've got four hours to kill, and I just have a sleep in Civic Square. Michael does still have its limits, though. When everyone gets together for New Year's Eve, they do lines of stuff, but I play it safe and I take six no-dos. <laughs> <laughs> the only downside is the next day my pee is, like, dark brown. <laughs> I look at the photos on Facebook from way back then, and I see that girl with the blunt fringe and a dotty play suit. She is so much more uncertain than she lets on. I got away with it anyway. And I found summer in the city. But the cool girls, they don't have it all figured out. 
This was the time when I learned that perception is not reality, and reality can be tricky. When Jackie wakes in the morning, she's often exhausted. Some days she can be so low, but she always puts on a brave face for me. She explains life in matter-of-fact terms. She explains why she feels like she does, but never in a way to worry me. And over time, I am the one giving her advice, her care and comfort. I preempt every piece of advice with, well, I'm 17. I don't really know much, but... But she listened. Being listened to is what made me feel like I was being seen for the first time. Jackie moves to Melbourne. I go see Jackie. She's still putting on her brave face for me, but it isn't great. She's tired from her two-hour commute every day from work. She's going out late every night with her hospital boyfriend. She still loves me, though, like a little sister that she didn't have. I came over that year with my boyfriend at the time, and she takes us to all the cool bars in Melbourne. Even when she has other friends around, she takes care of me first. She holds my hand on the tram. My boyfriend of that time, he never held my hand the way that she did. Time passed. Summers came and went. Dreams changed. A few summers on, she's back in Wellington. She tells me she's opening a shop. They put paint on the walls and buy stock from all over New Zealand. That year, I find myself back on the brink. I'm finishing university, but I'm failing. I break up with my boyfriend. I walk out on my parents after a rowdy fight. I ring Jackie from a flat in Arrow Street where I'm imbibing whiskey with far too much abandon. Jackie, I ask, can I stay just for a little while? Stay as long as you want, she says. I stay 10 days. As time went on, we stayed close, but the new business and new boyfriend, they took over. I am no longer 17. I am no longer the baby. Suddenly, I'm 23, the same age as my hero. Or at least the same age I will always remember her being. I couldn't reassure her with my childhood innocence anymore. All summers end with a great sunset. When Jackie got married this year, I was 26. I went to the wedding. I looked around at the faces. And while I know many of them, I don't see anyone except for family who I can trace back to when we first met, me and Jackie. I wonder where all those people have gone, the people at the party, the people from Melbourne, the faces I knew who had accepted me when I wanted more than anything else just to be accepted. When I needed heroes. The garden where the reception is held is green. Flowers bloom. They dance all night to Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin and the Velvet Underground. I saw Jackie standing slim and tall in her 20s-style wedding dress. She smiled on others now. After a few drinks, even though I know he's not there, I look around at the faces again, just to see if the boy in the flat peak cap could be hiding somewhere. Of course, he wasn't. 
So I danced on my own, on the stage set up, above and amongst the crowd. The heroes had changed and so had the pedestal. But I didn't need a hero anymore. I had me. At least, I think to myself as I spin around. I know more than I did last summer. Our storyteller, Rob McBride, is an interactive designer and digital artist from Melbourne, Australia. He spent nearly eight years working in the video games industry and is currently a VFX artist at Weta Digital. He's no stranger to storytelling and has the ability to spin a yarn for any and all situations. This is Rob's story. Can I get you all to please put your hands together for Rob McBride? Hello, yeah, it's kind of like when Louis C.K. was the only one to come on the news and talk about masturbating because nobody else would, yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. So, um, I'm Louis C.K. Yeah, well, That's what I'm taking I think, Yeah, that sure, absolutely. That's all I'm going to take We can that. spin it that way, yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah. Okay, and so what kind of do we have, um, do we have sort of, what, you know, what's your little summary? Um, okay, I've got three... I'm hoping short stories, I can't see you, which is pretty good, um, yeah, wh wherever you are. I have three short stories that I'm going to say you guys, they do follow the theme, they, they're in keeping with the theme, um, they're embarrassing and funny and kind of a bit gross, all of them, okay, some of them are a little bit gory. That sounds good, it's good that you've written for the theme and not just done your own thing, yeah. I mean, which I would have totally been cool with. Well, I kind of did my own thing anyway and then yeah. tried to figure out how to wrap that to the theme. So, it's yeah. good. It's like when you see like a Trop Fest film and the theme is Matchsticks and like at one scene somebody like wipes them off. It's like, okay, cool, back to what we were doing. I had a film in the year when it was Matchsticks. What? <laughs> yeah. What one was that? Why are you doing this? What, what was your one? You're hitting on all the levels. What was your film in the Matchsticks one? Um, it, was, it was called I Can't Get Started and it was about two guys in a urinal having a pissing contest. I've seen that one. You've seen that? I have the Trop Fest DVD for that one. It was the same one where the woman does Get poo fucked. Puts, puts you you actually really? Yeah, she puts a poo in the handbag. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh my god. Oh my god. And then there's another one, and he's just a huge cigarette, and he's like, yeah. and he like walks down the lift. I worked. That was very long time ago. Yeah, but, I remember yeah. a lot of Australian <laughs> content from when I was about twelve. Wow, man. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to figure out why. We got best newcomer award for that. Did whole. you? I think I remember. I super remember watching that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I so <laughs> remember. That's really weird, man. Does, did anybody see these? Yeah. No, we're gonna stop. <laughs> we're gonna stop. We're gonna stop. 20 not. minutes yeah. ago. Okay, we're gonna give it up, Rob. Thanks, guys. Um, okay, so I'm gonna like get really manic and I'm gonna talk really quickly. I didn't write anything down. I've told these stories enough times. I should be able to tell them fairly well to you guys right now. So uh, the theme that I went with was um, summertime jobs, jobs that you did in summer uh, that were fairly memorable because, I don't know, it was summertime. Um, so, you know, when you're, when you're 16 and you get on your school holidays and you want to get, like, drunk on a, on a single glass of shitty bourbon and you want to be asleep all the time because you're a teenager um, and you want to go and do all this cool shit but... Um, you don't have any money because you're a 16 year old and so on, on the second day of your holiday um, your mother or father says alright you're coming to work with me um, from now on and so I worked with my dad uh, this was would have been 1990 I'm pretty old 1997 I think 
I was about 16, 17 years old. My father, professional fitter and turner, built uh, really big packaging machines for an uh, international industrial conglomerate. Uh, so he designed them and then he built them. So he worked in a big factory with all these big machines that boxed ice cream and stuff like that. Really interesting stuff. And, um, <laughs> and so I went to work with him and he had me pulling apart the older machines that had been um, you know, decommissioned or whatever which was actually a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be because I was basically every day wearing coveralls and covered in shit like from head to toe and I was inside these big machines with a very basic tool belt and you know figuring out which nuts to take off to take these brackets off and then put all of that in scrap and then come back. I was also, because I was the youngest kid there, I was also the gopher uh, which is the person who takes all the money and all the lunch orders and then goes to the tuck shop or whatever and buys the, or the dairy and buys all of the um, food and brings it back. All of my stories take place in Australia, I should just say. I'm Australian. <laughs> I'm from Melbourne. I'm sorry if that's bad for you. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I would go and get all the lunches for everybody, uh, come on back, everybody would be sitting around, my boss, uh, my dad, his boss, and all the other funny old blokes that, that worked there, and that all be, you know, telling stories, obviously. And there's some really good stories. Tony Volk, uh, who is still alive to this day, he's retired, my father is also retired, um, he is this crazy Russian guy, he was like, he had the accent, he, he had the, the, the broad face, he was the best Russian stereotype ever, which made him infinitely interesting to me because he was just really interesting to listen to talking really. Um, he, he spent uh, all of his teen years in China and he spoke fluent Mandarin. Um, and he was just a really interesting guy. He always used to go on these tangents at lunchtime and um, he'd get like three or four sentences in and then my dad and, and, and Wally, who was his, his boss, would just like turn around and start talking to each other. And I would always be left as the only one sitting there listening to Tony talk. I actually pulled my father up on this at one point. I was like, that's kind of rude that you guys do that to Tony. I've seen you, that you do that. And he'd be like, ah, oh, he talks a lot of shit. You just have to not listen to him. <laughs> but... Um, so he tells me this one story that stuck with me. I'm on my summer job and he's like, oh, on my summer job, when I was your age, like, I don't know, in the 50s or 60s or something in Russia, uh, I, I worked in a factory as well um, where we smelted uh, sheet metal. So they, they smelted the, the sheet metal that you use to make the factory walls with, so they made the factories at the factory. And... Um, <laughs> So, so they would get these really big pieces of sheet metal, and uh, this sounds really weird and made up, but this is how they did it. They would smelt the sheet metal, and then it would hang way up in the roof of the factory from these hooks um, while it was cooling, um, apparently. And uh, they had very basic, like, 50s, 60s safety procedures where there was a little bell if there was any kind of an emergency. So the day when there was an emergency and one of the hooks came out, which meant that this big sheet sort of fell out and then fell down, um, the, the, the bell starts going and the drill is that everybody hits the deck. When, when you hear the bell going, it probably means that a giant piece of metal is coming down from the roof right now. So everybody hits the deck, gets on the floor as flat as they possibly can, and they wait for this excruciatingly long time while this piece of metal, like a giant sheet of paper, is whooshing down uh, from side to side in the air and they can hear this whooshing sound so they know that it's still falling. Every whoosh is like another big sort of movement of this piece of paper. His boss walks into the factory while this is happening, realises what's going on, sort of panics and then does the, the old earthquake in the doorway uh, thing instead of getting down on the floor. 
And <clears throat> the big sheet of paper metal keeps coming down and eventually, you know, crashes uh, catastrophically in the corner and makes a hideously loud sound. Everybody sort of stands up, dusts himself off, think they're okay, everything's fine. And then I look at his boss and apparently from uh, just above his knees down was completely drenched in blood and there was buckets of blood just coming out all over the floor because this sheet of metal had perfectly just sliced straight through him as it was going past and actually went through his bones as well. And it was so perfect that he didn't even notice that it had happened. Uh, the cut just went just straight through him. Um, yeah, and that was the end of Tony's story. So I don't know whether the guy lost his legs or died or, or, or what, but... Um, so, yeah, so that was my summer job when I was, when I was 16, 17. Um, how am I doing? Story number yeah, two? I'm like, I'm ready for Q&A. All right, sweet <laughs> <laughs> Uh Maybe. Um, we, we can find out. So, okay, so now I'm in university. I'm probably in my mid-twenties. I can't tell you what year it is. That's going too far um, because, you know, you know what it was like when you're in your mid-twenties and you're at university. Um, it was, it was, I was, I was working a hospo uh, at, a, at a restaurant um, and I worked with a guy called Joe uh, who uh, was from Queensland um, and was, you know, pretty tough and sounded like a Queenslander, you know, like he was, he was pretty fucking, you know, I'm from Queensland, you know, um, I'll kick you in the pooper and he had all these, he had all these funny sayings. So he was a front of house waiter. Um, he was on it 24-7. All the sous chefs that I worked with and everybody, you're always completely drunk and, you know, and, and other things, obviously, in, in the service industry. And um, so Joe lived in St Kilda and he lived um, in a house with these twin brothers. Um, I'm going to call them Zach and Jared. I, I don't remember whether that's actually their names, but it's probably best that I keep their identities secret anyway. Um, so, uh, what happened was they had these neighbours in the townhouse next door and they were in hospo. I think everybody on the block all worked in hospo, so they all had, we all had the secret handshake and we all, you know. So, they, they, they're having this housewarming party because they've just moved into this, um, this townhouse. So, Joe and I, you know, go to this, um, housewarming party and, um, and, and Jared, uh, sorry, uh, Zach, Zach is there with his girlfriend. His brother Jared isn't there because uh, for the last week or two, he had really bad food poisoning. And so he'd been nursing himself at home for a bit and, uh, you know, doing the right thing. So <clears throat> the legend goes that, uh, um, that, that Jared and his missus, they're at the party and they see Zach and he's looking very sheepish and like he's just been sprung. And they go over to say hello to him. And um, he, he, you know, instantly cuts them off and he says... I know, I know, I'm, you know, I'm probably still a bit unwell. I know that I shouldn't be here, um, but, you know, I didn't... This was going to be an amazing party. Like, there's, you know, hundreds of people in this tiny little townhouse. It's really cool. It's St Kilda. Um, I didn't want to have massive FOMO. I didn't want to listen to this awesome party through the wall all night. Uh, I just wanted to make an appearance as well. It would be rude of me to not, because they invited me and, I, and they're lovely people. I'm just going to finish this one beer that I'm having. I'm going to eat like an hors d'oeuvre, and then I'm going to go home and lie down in the dark and continue to feel sick. And they're like, that's fine. That, that's totally fine. You know, you're, you're a big boy. Uh, it, it, it's your funeral. Um, you know, it, it, really, it really doesn't matter to us, just as long as you're okay, and et cetera. And he's like, yep, yep, cool, cool. 
So he goes over the table and he picks up a cracker with some cheese and he chews it up and swallows it and it instantly hits his stomach and then his stomach does backflips and he's like, oh, 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 uh, I, I uh, really shouldn't have done that. Um, and he decides that he needs the toilet pretty much immediately. So he, he realises the toilet's upstairs. Uh, there's, you know, the staircase with the line to the toilet coming all the way down the staircase. So he's waiting in this line for a really long time. Things are getting worse and worse. Things are starting to really churn around in there. Um, he's, he's getting really desperate. Eventually, after some uh, awful amount of time, he gets inside the toilet. Uh, and it was like a big, beautiful, uh, like, you know, ensuite bathroom, um, all tiled. Toilets down the other end, you know, big shower recess sink. And, uh, you know, so he's pretty much, I guess, got his pants down and he's like walking across the room with his pants down, um, like literally ready to, to get this diarrhea going. And uh, so he uh, gets to the toilet and realizes that it's completely clogged because it's a party and they've just thrashed the toilet pretty much. And at this point, the anticipation of knowing that he was so close to the toilet is on top of him so much that he, in a moment of panic, just throws the shower curtain back and points himself at, at their bathtub and does his awful diarrhea spray um, into their bathtub and gets it all out and, you know, feels like this is a bad thing I've done here, but, <laughs> but, I, but is feeling pretty good and, like, he's probably going to get away with it. And uh, so cleans himself up and... Um, turns around to face the bath to, to clear up his mess, and the entire bath, because these are hospo people, the entire bath is filled with ice and, um, and, uh, and a very expensive seafood bonanza. <laughs> so, so, you know, prawns and crayfish and various cuts of fish that are quite nice. And obviously he flips out and... So blasts the hot water on straight away. You know, that doesn't really help much. He takes the plug out and it turns into this sort of half-melted slag in the bottom of the tub. And by this time, people are hammering on the door and saying, you know, what the fuck, like, get out of there. This, this is a, I need, we need to go, there's a big line. So he panics and he climbs up on the toilet and goes through the little window that's like way up there, like and like drops us like a floor and a half down um, and, and goes around the block and back into his house and turns all the lights off and, uh, and, just, and just hides in the dark, basically, for, for about 20 minutes until his conscience gets the better of him and so he decides to call the guys and so he calls the guy there and gets on the phone to him in the middle of this party where he's having an awesome time and tells him the entire thing that I've just told you, basically. Um, and then at the end he's like, so I'm really, really sorry, you know, and it's very embarrassing for me, obviously, and it's really embarrassing for you as well, and I get that it was very expensive as well, and I'm totally prepared to reimburse you for the entire seafood bonanza. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and obviously it was a real dick move of me to climb through your window and disappear like that and leave the door locked, but, you know, like, I, obviously it was very embarrassing for me and I just needed to get out of there and I could have been, you know, even more sick. Um, and, uh, and, and once he finishes this huge big diatribe to the guy, there's like a big gulf of silence on the other end of the phone. And then eventually he says, uh, well, I mean, did you try and clean it up? <laughs> and uh, to which um, Zach or Jared says, uh, mate, have you ever tried to clean shit off of ice? <laughs> um, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, story three? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, okay.
Okay. So uh, we're going even further forward in time. This is, I want to say this is about 2007, 2008. I'm in my final year of university. And at this point, um, my friends and I are doing contract work um, in, in, you know, in graphic design, in interactive design work. Um, we're digital artists. And uh, we're trying to work for really cool firms that won't look at us twice yet because we don't have the portfolio. You know what it's like. So we're doing, we're doing contract work uh, for all these weird people. We did this one contract job while we were still studying this one summer. We did this contract for a friend who, who put us onto this guy, uh, Professor uh, Colin Klein, who is this really, uh, really cool, really gnarly old guy with glasses who is a professor at the La Trobe uh, Science Campus in Melbourne. And um, so this was like it, back in like 2006 when we, when we stopped talking about uh, global warming and we started talking about... Uh, climate change and I don't know if anybody remembers but there was a lot of really crackpot ideas going around back then. There were um, guys that wanted to build uh, artificial trees to filter our air that were like a machine. There were, there were guys that wanted to put these weird derricks in the ocean to evaporate water to help to shield us from UV rays and there's a lot of variations on ideas around launching things into space to, um, to, to block UV. Collins was one of those. He had 21 giant fabric discs and he wanted to shoot them into space and assemble them in space and they would all have uh, little little rockets on them that would allow them to move. He wanted to um, suspend them in Lagrange point one. Uh, there's all these Lagrange points around the Earth which are essentially... <laughs> which are like gravitational dead zones, basically. Has anybody heard of this before? or Does anybody know what a Lagrange point is? Or, no. So, <laughs> so we, we made a pre-visualisation for him so that he was going to take it to the Latrobe uh, Board of Science, show it to them, get a bit of interest, get some funding, and then he was going to take it and show it to NASA. A lot of these ideas didn't really turn into anything, and he ended up paying us not as much as we thought we were going to get. Um, but we made him these really sweet-looking 3D animations of the Earth with, like, 21 discs all in this weird ellipse that you could wink and, you know, turn off and move around and all these different things to, you know, filter the sun's rays on the polar caps. I remember when we had our first meeting with him uh, and he finished explaining everything that I've just explained to you guys. And, uh, <laughs> and I said to him, I was like, this, is, this sounds like a stupid question even to me, um, but... If this fell into the wrong hands, uh, could it be used for evil? You know, like some doomsday device or something? Because I was looking at his designs and I was like, this is kind of gnarly looking stuff. And he got this sort of quizzical look on his face and really thought about the question and then went, yeah, yeah, it could, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, great, cool. Well, yeah, so we're going to help you build it. Um, so... On our, one of our last meetings with him where we had to show him all of the work that we had done, um, he, all the meetings we had with him were at this pub. Uh, James Walker, I think is what it was called. I don't know if it's still called that. It was on Ligon Street in Melbourne. And this is a sort of 60-plus clientele, uh, very expensive uh, Italian foods and a very expensive, extensive bar. And he ate there all the time anyway because he was loaded. And, you know, and that was just, you know, it was sort of like upper middle class old white people. And um, so we were students and we didn't have any money and we looked like students, we looked like bums. And uh, so we, and this, we, we needed something to show him like what we'd done and we didn't have anything. So, so we asked a few friends and our friend uh, Christian, who now uh, lives in the UK, 
hi Chris, um, said to us, oh, um, I can get my housemate's laptop. Uh, I can, you guys can borrow that. And we're like, sweet, perfect. We didn't have anything like that. So we went through this whole day of uni and we got to the end of the day and uh, <clears throat> met him. So he handed us the computer like 20 minutes before we went to this meeting. And even when he was handing it to me, I'm looking at it and it was all cruddy and gross looking and it had all these stickers all over it and stuff. And, you know, he says like, uh, oh, and, you know, the, the battery is just like cactus, so it has to be plugged into power all the time. And I'm like, well, what's the point of us even, you know... Anyway, so, so we like take it, we cycle straight to the place, we get there and um, we're kind of panicking a little bit, we're a little bit nervous um, because there's a lot riding on this one meeting. And uh, so we go straight into the restaurant, we, we see a table with a, with a socket near it, so we go and sit down near that and we're sort of dropping things and like books are falling out of our bags and we're dropping pens and stuff and looking very clumsy. We're trying to plug this computer in, turn it on, this waiter comes up to us and is very rude to us and says... You can't sit here. Um, you know, this whole area you pretty much can't sit in. You just go, like, you know. Um, I, I, I can tell that you don't have any money and that you eat ramen noodles every night. And um, at that point, uh, Colin sort of just materialised behind this guy and sort of massaged his, like, his shoulder calmly and was in his ear and was like, oh, these boys, these boys are with me and we need a table with a, with a socket near it. And of course, because he's there all the time and, and they love his guts, uh, this waiter is like, absolutely, yes, follow me. And he takes us into the bar and he kicks a group of people off a table for us who hate us instantly and like go to, I don't know, another table or the bar or something and they're pretty much like glaring at us the entire time. So we sit down and we plug this in. Um, Dave turns the computer on, I'm talking to Colin um, Dave, it takes like a, what felt like a very long time to log into Windows 98 and as soon as I see the desktop I'm like oh like yeah that's that's not good this person doesn't know how to groundskeep a computer at all and there's all these broken like shortcuts and like things that don't go anywhere and all these different files and and a lot of, we found out very quickly, really questionable stuff. Uh, and, and it was very, it must have been chocked to the gills because it was very choppy and slow. So Dave's trying to, he's plugged his, he's plugged his USB drive in, he's trying to drag the mouse up to it to open it. Uh, but he sort of, the choppiness and all the weirdness gets stuck halfway, accidentally clicks on something else. And um, instantly, uh, QuickTime opens and it's hardcore porn. Like, it's, it's like, it's, it's, I don't know how much of a description I should give in, in, this, uh, in, in this setting, but it was anal. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was two people um, having anal sex um, quite loudly. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and as soon as I saw it appear, like, the screen was faced away from Colin. Like, so Dave is here, and I'm here, and Colin's sort of there. And... Uh, and Dave, this awful sort of wave comes out of Dave, and he's like, oh, like, and uh, he's, he's just moved the mouse straight up to the X, and he's just hammering it, and the little mime, because all of the software's out of date, and no one loves this computer at all, so the little mime settings box has appeared, and it's like, you need to, you know, fix your settings, okay? And it's like, you can't close me until you hit okay, but he's just sort of fixed, and he's like trying to just hit the close button, but he can't, and the mime settings box is still there. And I'm like, I see what's happening. And so to Colin, I'm like, so um, uh, we, we didn't really, you didn't give us much of a, so we thought we would design it based on a, and, I, and in my head, I'm like, if I stop talking, he's going to hear the porn. And, 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 
and he's going to see the porn. And, uh, and eventually, I sort of just couldn't do it. And he did, like, hear and see the porn. And um, so he's sort of around looking at it, and we're all looking at it, and, and Dave sort of, like, finally closes the little, the little settings uh, GUI that's appeared, just in time for, like, you know, the finish of, of the <laughs> pornographic film. Um, just in time for the, the cum shot. Um, <clears throat> and so we're all sort of frozen, like, ah, like, looking at it, and then we just close the lid. And everybody that we told this story to was like, why didn't you close the lid? Why didn't you turn it over and take the battery out? Why didn't you blah, blah, blah? And we're like, dude, we were petrified. And it had sound. And we were surrounded by all these people that hated us, like... <laughs> All these old people as well that would have never dreamed of anything like that even existing, you know. Colin was really good about it and he sort of was like, oh, hello. And then he, I think he got that we were pretty much mortified about it and um, moved the meeting on very quickly after that. And then we left and um, got very drunk. And that's the end of my stories. <laughs> Our storyteller, Marva, was born in Nelson, where she spent most of her childhood. She narrowly missed out on fame after her older brother nabbed the title of first Persian ever to be born in Nelson. They had a pet goat called Chubba Chub. Marva now lives in Wellington. She recently finished a master's degree and works as a journalist for The Wireless. This is Marva's story. So, everyone give it up for Marva. <laughs> so... I grew up with parents who taught me, even before I could talk, about the strength of women. They hold this firm belief that the equality of, hum of men and women is like essential for humanity's progress. And that if women aren't equal to men, it not only stumps their advancement, but it stumps the advancement of everyone. So you can imagine me growing up with this incredibly heartwarming sentiment that I felt pretty strong. And it wasn't like a, oh, I'm a woman and you're a guy, so I'm better than you. It was more like a, you know, I can handle any situation because I'm a lady kind of, kind of way. But one summer, that was all shattered. So my parents moved overseas and when I was at university. So what I would do is every summer I'd go and see them and I'd usually, I'd usually be able to kind of scrounge together enough money to go and see a few other places on the way. So a couple of years ago, I ended up in Macedonia. You may be asking, why would you go to Macedonia? And the gist of my decision-making process was like, I really want to go to Turkey. Yeah, I'm going to go to Turkey. Where do I go after Turkey? Okay, I'll just search cheapest flight out of Turkey. Macedonia, that must be where macadamia nuts are from. Perfect, I'll go to Macedonia. So I booked my uh, flights pretty quickly and then found out that Macedonia is not where macadamia nuts come from. They come from Australia. <laughs> so I should have gone, gone to Australia. So I arrived in Skopje, which is the capital of Macedonia, and it was in the middle of the winter. And I get off the plane and I think to myself, oh, who the hell goes to Macedonia? Turns out, like, nobody. I was the only person in the hostel um, when I arrived. And I spent the evening chatting to a really lovely hostel owner. She was a sweetheart. And I went to bed that night alone in this hostel with, you know, like, 15 bunk beds with just me, with no idea of the ridiculousness that was about to follow. So just for a tiny bit of context, the Republic of Macedonia, which is what it's formerly known as, 
is a landlocked country in the Balkans and um, Southeast Europe. And it was once part of former Yugoslavia. And without going into too much detail, Macedonia is sort of marked with conflict and it has been fighting for its independence forever. It's also incredibly poor. It has um, like the lowest per capita GDP in the whole of Europe. So with none of this information, I get up in the morning and head, in, head into Macedonia. And it's a quaint little city. Like it's got those cobblestone pavement, like paveways, roads and things, and lots of statues of Alexander the Great. Like they love that guy so much. <laughs> and I walk over this bridge and it's a beautiful bridge. And I look to my si side and I see this group of men playing the cup game. And we all know the cup game. It's that one where you get a marble and you put it under a cup and then you shuffle the cups around and then you have to guess which cup the marble's under. You know the one? And, like, I'm not an idiot. Like, I know it's not you can't win, that the guy's obviously doing some kind of cool trick and so you're never going to win. But I stopped and watched anyway. I stopped and watched this group of men betting on this cup game. So it turns out that that was a massive mistake because any actual Macedonian would never stop and watch. So by standing there and viewing it, I was inadvertently telling everyone that I was an idiot tourist. <laughs> so about five or six of those men come over to me and they kind of invite me to, to join in the game. And they usher me over to the guy who's doing the cups. And this guy is good. Like He's been doing this cup shifting for a really long time. And my reaction was really sensible. I was like, no, no, I don't gamble. Like, no, I don't want to play. Like, no, thank, thank you. But they, just, <laughs> but they just kept saying, just choose, just choose, in really limited Eng English and keep pointing to the cups. And as they were saying this, they created a human man circle around me. <laughs> so now I'm standing on this bridge in Macedonia with a guy switching cups, with a circle of Macedonian men surrounding me. And I, you know, I knew I'm not going to win the frickin' cup game, and so I start to panic. And then one of the, the men says, points and says, oh, you won, which is really confusing because I hadn't even pointed at a cup yet. And they hand me this wad of cash, and I was like, oh, my God, I don't, I don't want this money. I don't want to, what do I do? So I took out my wallet, and I guess I was thinking, I'll put the money in my wallet and go, and just, like, like, just, <laughs> like, woo, I won, yay. And I kid you not, like, <laughs> the guy, one guy said to me, whoa, what's over there? And I looked. <laughs> And I looked back, and honestly, in that second that I looked and looked back, the cup guy was gone, all his friends were gone, the marbles were gone, all the money in my wallet was gone, and even the money that I had supposedly won was gone. And they were nowhere to be seen, like absolutely nowhere. And my initial reaction was like, fuck, that's impressive. Like, <laughs> I was like, I suddenly realised as well that every single man had been in on that scam. No one was actually betting. They were just there trying to lure someone in. But then it began to sink in that I was a really poor student and that money, that two or three hundred euros, was fundamental to my eating and sleeping for the next few weeks. So I was furious and I stormed around the bridge looking for this men. And seeing it was a bridge, I was like, well, they must have jumped off the bridge. Like, there's no way any like, those amount of human beings can disappear in a second. So thinking back now, I'm like, oh, I kind of deserve the money. Like, 
just the slickness of that operation. <laughs> Maybe that, that's like, it's worth paying for it. But in the heat of the moment, I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking, like, give my mother effing money back. So I did what any reasonable human being would do, and I went hunting them down. <laughs> so you have to imagine for a moment, it's me, ugly crying, walking through Macedonia, and I'm mumbling under my breath, like, where the hell are they? Like, between sobs. And so I spot this group of guys who are huddled behind a warehouse, sort of smoking. And I have absolutely no idea if this is the, these are the cup gang who've taken my money. <laughs> but I stand there and I go, hey, give me my money back. <laughs> and they start running. They just run. <laughs> and so I do what any normal human being would do, and I chase after them. <laughs> so... I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with parkour, but that, <laughs> that is what was happening. Like I was jumping over fences, like rolling down hills, doing badass sidesteps between cars, trying to catch these grown men who were running away from me. And like, what the hell was I gonna do if I caught up to them? Like, oh, yeah, give it back. And I, like, I don't know. But I didn't catch them. They ran through a highway and I hesitated because I'm not badass enough, apparently. And they got away. So I was stuck now. I was in the old part of Macedonia, the old city. I was completely lost. I had no money. I had no pride. So my angry crying just turned into, like, straight sad, ugly crying. And I just wandered the streets of Macedonia until this really kind Turkish man took me into a store and he gave me some Turkish coffee and called the police. It was a big mistake, <laughs> big mistake. I should have just let it go at that point, but evidenced by my like hunting and chasing, I'm not someone who like lets things go like really easily. So the police spoke up, sorry, the police showed up and they spoke really, really limited English, but they basically convinced me to get into the car with them and they drive me to the police station. And this car is so cramped, I can feel the guy's gun like pushing up against my thigh, and I really hope it was his gun. <laughs> and then they clearly felt sorry for me, and kind of in this really broken English, they, were, they offered to later on escort me through the city, you know, give me like a guided tour. And I was like, yeah, like, what's... What's more, better than a guided tour of a city with police? No cup gang's going to mess with me then. So, and I thought, you know, if I can't trust the police, who else can I trust? So, <laughs> so they took me to the police station, dropped me off, and I spent hours in there. And it was hours of explaining my story about ten times to different levels of management. And every single one of them would just crack up and be like, you took out your wallet? Like, you're an idiot. So it was like mid-afternoon and I was like, guys, like, I'm over it. At least I'm just going to go. No one's going to find my money. And they go, oh, no, you can't go. And I was like, why not? They're like, we've got the top investiga investigator of Macedonia on your case. They had literally called the Macedonian FBI <laughs> to solve my case. And I, I, in hindsight, I think they were showing up, sorry, showing off because I was like, you know, a foreigner and no one visits Macedonia. So, <laughs> so for real, a man showed up in a full length trench coat. <laughs> he offered me a banana. <laughs> and he took me to his office 
where he made me scroll through folders and folders of like perps pictures and was like point out the guys point out the guys that did it and I'm like I don't remember what they look like so I like spend a little bit of time like going through these folders and I'm like you know what I'm gonna I'm in this country for two days nothing's gonna happen so I'm like maybe this guy like maybe that guy I don't know I don't know what would you guys have done like I was like (laughs) judging me it was a tough situation so anyway he took me back to my hostel and I thought well you know that's that's the end of my day thank gosh that was terrible five minutes into explaining to the hostel owner what was going on and there's a knock at the door we open the door and I don't remember if you guys remember me telling you but the police had offered to give me an escorted tour around the city. Yeah, turns out it was just one of the police officers off duty. He was there to take me on a date. <laughs> and he had this look on his face. It was kind of like, hey, baby, I'm going to show you Macedonia real good. <laughs> and I, like, I didn't know what to do, so I just went with him. <laughs> and he took me out for pizza. And he, the only words he could say in English was, it's okay, I am police. That's all he could say. Anyway, I was desperate to leave and get out of this situation. And despite my police to be taken home, this weird off-duty policeman took me to the top of this freezing cold mountain called called Mount Vodno. So, and he tried to romantically hug me, you know, like he did this, oh, cold. (laughs) So in that situation, in my mind, I had two options. I could like, karate chop if off kind of such you know or I could but that was the risk of being abandoned at the top of this mountain and freezing to death or I could just play it real cool so I chose the latter and I was like I'm not even cold it was minus four degrees I'm not even cold no I don't need a hug I'm all good and ran to the car eventually convincing him to take me back to the hostel and declining his offer to come in and give me a massage so (laughs) so back inside of the hostel I get in, I close the door, and I'm like, oh, my God, make this stop. And the hostel owner looks at me, and she's like, oh, I'm really sorry. The FBI guys came back. They've caught a whole bunch of guys, and they want you to go down to the police station and identify them. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? So, so it's about midnight at this point, and I go down to the police station where every single police officer in Macedonia has, like, congregated for this moment. And they tell me to hold my nose and they take me down to the cell where they have these like five or six poor men who like have been waiting in the stinky cell. Like who, who knows how long they'd been there while I was trying to avoid the, avoid the embrace of an inappropriate like officer of the law on a mountain. <laughs> so through one way glass, these men held up numbers one to six and stood in a line. And I was meant to point out the one that had like done it. And I just couldn't. Like, I just couldn't. I was like, I can't potentially send an innocent man to jail and I'm getting a general gist of the police said that they're kind of assholes. So I, they probably, you know, I just couldn't do it. So I was like, I'm sorry, it's like none of these guys. And the police got really pissed, but they were basically like, fine, it's fine, we'll go out and we'll catch them more as if it was some kind of like fishing expedition <laughs> or something. It was really bizarre. So... They took me back to the hostel and I was just grateful the night was over and I got in and my hostel owner looked at me and her face was pale like the snow on top of Mount Vodnor. And she was like, 
while you were gone, that off-duty police officer came back and he tried to book a room here. And I was like, fuck. So, and it was just us two. We locked all the doors and we spent the whole night like scared for our lives, remembering that like we're in Eastern Europe and police like rule. They can do whatever the hell they want. It was a terrible night of like dread and fear and not knowing if the cup gang was gonna come after me, <laughs> like the police, if the FBI were gonna show up with more bananas, I just had no idea <laughs> what was gonna happen. I got to, the, got to the morning and I just caught a bus to Bulgaria the next day. <laughs> so, you know, I had arrived in Macedonia with this belief that women are powerful, just as powerful in men, but in fact, I left and I learnt that most of the world were not, and I learnt that you know, the people that I'm meant to be able to trust, I can't really. And while I still firmly believe in the importance of equality between men and women, that summer in Macedonia, which was their winter, I learned that there's a whole lot more work that we need to do in this world so that there isn't that level of inequality and powerlessness for women. And I lost some of my sort of wide-eyed naivety and I lost a whole bunch of euros, so. <laughs> Our storyteller, James Nikise, is a 2013 Fred Dagg Comedy Award nominee and two-time Billy T Comedy Award nominee, along with countless other awards that are far too long to list. He's a Welsh-slash-Samoan comedian. Over the years, James Nikise has carved out a reputation in New Zealand, going after everything from gangs and politicians to stereotypes within Pacific culture. This is James's story. Can everyone please put their hands together for James Nikise? Hello. All right. Yeah, that's, that's a little bit. That's just, oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you don't need to. I believe in equality. It's, um, it's good. I don't know. It gets complicated. I'm just, I'm just trying not to get a hiding. That's all. I think, I don't know. Are we moving into race? I forget. Cool. Okay. Sweet. Yes. Uh, I'm going to tell you guys a story I haven't told on stage before, uh, which is about when I was a teenager and hit rock bottom and then sort of transformed myself over a month, uh, which was the summer, summer over the summer of uh, the millennial summer from 99 to 2000, because I think I'm the oldest one here. But cool. And so, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Rob's left. <laughs> cool. Okay. Good. Yes. Um, so yeah, like uh, Ella said, I, I get uh, a lot of uh, praise on stuff uh, like writing, um, and uh, my secret is really I'm not a very good writer. I, I just happen to have a life which has a lot of ridiculousness in it, um, and so this is a story of that. And of summer in 1999, I was 17 years old at the end of it, and I uh, was just failing at life. Uh, I was uh, the same height I am now, but 20 kgs lighter. Uh, I had a serious drinking problem. Um, uh, I had failed sixth form, uh, which is quite an effort uh, for someone who had the raw marks that I had. Uh, and a lot of pop went into that. And uh, I found myself um, uh, outside my friend's house one Saturday morning after an epic session of drinking and whatnot. Uh, uh, on the grass, waking up next to a bottle of cheap uh, bourbon, uh, as you do. Uh, Captain Morgan, it wasn't classy back then. Uh, it was the 90s, they were still figuring things out. And <laughs> I, um, 
I uh, was really, I'd, I'd been told that I was going to fail sixth form. I didn't have the raw marks uh, for it. I was dreadfully embarrassed because my father has a PhD and is the principal of the Pacific Theological College. And my mother was a senior civil servant for the Parliamentary Council Office at the time, uh, who are the law drafters of New Zealand. So the genes were there. Uh, <laughs> the effort was not. Uh, and I didn't know what to do. Um, I went inside uh, where a couple of mates were still sleeping in the house. Uh, the mother had gone to work. That's how we were mates. I was both raised by single mothers. Uh, a couple of mates were uh, passing and giving each other hand jobs in, the, um, in another room. Uh, and the girl who I had kind of been dating and was a couple of years older than me had uh, run off uh, with one of the seniors uh, from my high school to do illicit things. Um, so I decided to do what anyone would do, and I cooked everyone a massive batch of scrambled eggs. Uh, while I cooked the scrambled eggs, I thought maybe I should be a chef, because I clearly can't be a lawyer, uh, or really any of my life dreams. Computer programmer was one, um, but I'd failed sixth form, and that was it. That was uh, over. So uh, I realized I, I can only cook scrambled eggs, so chef was off the cards. Um, also realized that life at that point had kind of gone a bit like off-road for me. I like I I was six foot I uh, uh, which was a decent high I, I, I used to be good at sports when I played them um, I, I used to enjoy reading and writing and, and science and maths and I just wasn't enjoying anything but drinking and getting high uh, with the few friends that I had left because uh, I was quite lippy and and volatile uh, and I decided to go to my grandfather's house which was sort of a safe place uh, it was in Newtown which was infinitely more interesting than the Hutt Valley which. Where's where we set our scene? Um, so I, I, I was hanging out at my grandfather's, and I, I granddad's was also a, a place to hide. He was a very spiritual man. He was a minister. Again, ooh, so embarrassing to fail. And um, no pressure, long shadows in the Pacific. And I thought if I could just get a break of some sort, I like give me a sign, something, universe. I'll I'll, I'll try. I'll put in an effort. I showed up to school on Monday. And Neville Watson, who was old back then, is still somehow teaching now close to 80, is an English teacher, uh, white guy from South Africa, great cricketing stories. He pulled me out of religious studies class and uh, said, I know you can write because you tell tall tales all the time uh, to entertain your mates. I know you can write. If you promise you will never fail a test in my class next year, I will get you into seventh form. And I went, are you serious? And he went, I've talked to a few of the deans. We'll even get you into science. I'm like, I'm terrible at science. And he went, in biology, for the seventh form exam, 40% of it is based on an essay. <laughs> and I said, OK, but English, biology, is like, well, you're going to have to do one maths. But I've also talked to the principal, and he's agreed to allow you to enroll in the correspondence school for both history and art history. <laughs> I was like, all right, let's do it. I'll do it. I went home. I told my mom, I'm going to get into seventh form. She was like, how? I was like, I don't know. There's a lot of bullshit involved. <laughs> the important thing is happening. Let's just go. It's like, let's, not look it in the, let's not look the horse in the face. Let's not even look. Let's just get on the horse, ride it, see where it takes us. All right? It's no way. And then I generally did that American film montage get myself together. I'm like, all right, I, gotta, I, wanna, I wanna see what I can do. I'm a mixed race salmon kid. I got brains, I got a body. Let's see what the hell I can do. I grabbed a couple of my bros who I knew ran with Wellington Athletics. I said, train me, all right? And I lived up in the Western Hills. So I said, all right, every morning we're gonna do hill runs. I'm gonna show up at your house at six o'clock. You cook the scrambled eggs, we'll go for a run. <laughs> um, 
there he was, my mate Pano, six o'clock, uh, show up at my house. We would run up and down the Western Hills. Some days when we were real keen, we would run to the school and back, then get changed, then go back to school. Uh, after the school, I found a gym, I uh, enrolled uh, in the gym. I would go to the gym every day after school. I would do uh, legs one day, chest the other. There was a, uh, I would time it so I could go and watch a cartoon called Dragon Ball Z. Uh, <laughs> And I would sit there doing my bench press going, that's right, Goku, that's right, I power up. Every time I lose, every time I lose, I get stronger. Every time I lose, I get stronger. Uh, I go, what, what, who is this skinny beige kid? What are you doing? Um, I got a job. I, got a, I never had a, a proper job. I, I love movies. So I got a job at Hoyt's Lower Hut, arguably the shadiest of all of the Hoyt's complexes. <laughs> Um, but I learned like, how to serve people. I started a very long tradition of wearing waistcoats and bow ties and shit. Uh, and I, I got to see three films. Uh, I met a woman there uh, who was uh, a little bit older, but definitely had her head screwed on. Uh, and I didn't realize she was into me because I was way too self-obsessed and got like doing nothing. Um, I began reading again. I read epically. I, I, I was always into sci-fi and fantasy, so I just read. And when I wasn't reading, I spent time with a lovely lady whose name I don't mention here because we that relationship went sour and I, I'd give her respect because I didn't when I was with her. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I kind of began to get things together. Uh, uh, this was over a two week period. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I move fast. When I make a decision, I move fast. <laughs> On the third week, going actually into which we're almost, I think we're at the anniversary uh, of the weekend of it. I had a gym session and I, um, I, I, like I said, I live in the Western Hills. Now, to get across Western Hills is two ways from the Hutt Valley. You either go across the bridge that they built for people to get there, or if you're badass enough, uh, badass enough you, um, you run across the motorway. Uh, and I was badass enough. Uh, I'd done it a few times. Uh, I hadn't done it after a gym session. This was the problem. Um, I misread my body. Because uh, my brain said, you're, you're as fast as you normally are. The body was like, no, we just did a two-hour wait session. You have no pace. Um, so you got to wait for when it's pretty clear. It does happen. It's still New Zealand. So, you know, we don't have constant traffic. And so I started running across. Um, and I checked both ways, and I was clear. But I realized halfway across uh, the lane closest to me that the traffic was coming too fast and my body was moving too slow. Now, I had oncoming traffic at me from both sides, and I had to make split decisions. I decided to keep running because to turn would take too much speed, uh, too much time, and I I'd get hit. I cleared the barrier, because there's a medium barrier, which I'd, I'd, I'd clear in one jump and keep running. I cleared the barrier and knew I had taken too much time and I was going to get hit. That's a horrible moment. Uh, everything slows down. That is true. Your life does not flash before your eyes. That is complete bullshit. But everything slows because you go primal. Uh, the car was coming at full speed. Uh, I made three steps before impact. Uh, and the last thing I remember is diving. I dove with everything my body could muster. Uh, I woke up two seconds later uh, on the side of the road, facing the wrong direction, which was the first sign I'd been hit. Uh, I stood up and realized that my bare foot was touching the ground. This was the second sign I re hit. And then the blood uh, was on the ground. Uh, the car had uh, clipped me at full speed uh, on my ankle, taking my shoe off. Uh, I had never been in shock before. 
Uh, shock is very simple. You just do what your mind tells you to do. Uh, so a normal person will get hit by a car, go, ow, uh, wait for help on the motorway. Um, there was no help in the end. The car never stopped uh, the asshole who was driving it. Uh, I went, ah, I've lost my shoe. Where is my shoe? Oh, it's on the motorway. <laughs> I checked for oncoming traffic. I went to walk, can't walk, leg not working right now. I hopped on one foot back onto the lower motorway, retrieved my shoe, held up my prize. Oh, here come the cars, hop back. See the motorway, I'm now underneath Normandale Bridge. No one is stopping. Like, this is the most natural thing that people have ever seen. So I get up uh, to Normandale Bridge, and now I've got a conundrum. Do I go to my house and call up mum? Uh, we've hit a small snag in the James Nakise reboots, uh, 1999. I've been hit by a car. No, I don't know. Do I call an ambulance? Maybe there's an it's closer to go down to the road and try and see if there's an ambulance. I'm just standing there for about a quarter of an hour bleeding out of my leg. This car pulls over and this dude, who I just for the life of me cannot remember what he looks like, what he sounds like. I just remember him going, are you okay? And me going, oh, I just got hit by a car on the motorway. <laughs> I'm just trying to figure out what to do next. <laughs> He went, why don't you get in the car and I'll take you to the hospital? I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so he takes me, he takes me down to the A&E and luckily uh, my mate's mum was working uh, behind her and she goes, hey James, what's happening? And I'm like, oh, I just got hit on the motorway by a car. <laughs> Where'd it hit you? Oh, here on my leg, that's why it's bleeding. I can't feel it. And, um, She's like, okay, why don't you take a seat and we'll get someone to look at you. Are you in pain? I was like, no. It's like, are you thinking clearly? I'm like, uh, I think so. I think I'm, yep, I think, I think, yep, I think, yep, no, yep, uh, wait, yep. She's like, okay, well, go sit down. And she texted my mate, uh, her son. And uh, he, came, he came down, he's like, you all right, bro? I'm like, oh, yeah, I got hit by a car. He's like, oh, cool. He's like, man, I almost lost my shoe. He was like, what? <laughs> and I told him that. He's like, okay, don't tell anyone about going back for a shoe. Um, I then have to call my mom. He's like, I think you need to call your mom. Uh, I call up mom. My mom's like working really hard just to support both of us, always has. And I'm like, hey, don't be mad. Um, I kind of got hit by a car. But I'm okay, I'm just an A&E in the hospital and I'm bleeding from my foot, but I'm cool. She's like, well, what, what happened? I said, well, I was crossing the motorway and my mate starts cracking up because all he hears is, what do you mean you were crossing the motorway? Why would you call the motorway? I just, I needed, I was tired, mum. I needed a shortcut. And like the nurse is starting to crack up as well, going, who was this idiot? And uh, mum goes, I said to her, look, honestly, I'm fine. I'm with people. Don't leave work. Because I was really concerned that my mum might get into trouble for having to leave work because her idiot son got hit by a car. It didn't occur to me that people might go, oh, you should go and take care of that. <laughs> I finally get to see the doctor who told me off. I'll, I'll take it to my grave. It's about this big, long needle, uh, like, which I was like, how does that needle fit in my foot? I do not understand how this needle fits in my foot. She was like, shut up. And she's putting it in. I'm like, ow, it hurts. I thought you said it would take away the pain. She's like, well, it's going to hurt. And then she just got like, well, what were you thinking? I was like, what? I was tired. I, I just wanted to try and get home. I've done it before. It's like, did you even stop to consider the driver and how they would have felt if they'd killed you? And I was like, fucking no. <laughs> Not, they, a, they didn't stop. I don't think it was because they were embarrassed. <laughs> right. Right, right. Ooh, boom. Oh, oh, a person. Oh, oh God, never tell, never tell. Like, <laughs> I, 
so uh, fast forward, I, I, I didn't want to lose my job. I didn't want them to know that I'd been hit by a car. So I showed up for my Sunday shift. Uh, like, just got by, like, the cool thing is when you've grown up as a bit of a bro in a hut, is that I hit it by pretending I was just like a little gangster on my lean. <laughs> yeah, so man, yo, I'll just, I'll get, get the ice cream and start hobbling. Uh, <laughs> Along, for those of you at home, just picture that James right now is doing a somewhat gangster lean where he puts too much weight on his right leg, bouncing up and down like a slightly drunk kangaroo. So like, just kind of like, like that. Um, and uh, I, I kept job, and then I went back to the gym uh, two days later and just like stayed off my legs. And I kept training, and I... Um, I, 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 I kept uh, getting faster because, you know, when you've almost died, you know how fast you can move and you want to move faster. Uh, I kept crossing the motorway. It took me a few weeks, but I was like, no, I will not be defined by being hit <laughs> by a car crossing the motorway. You hold no power over me, motorway. And um, I crossed it again a couple of times uh, and, uh, and, I, and I won the uh, St. Bernard's College Senior Athletics Championship, uh, which was awesome. Uh, and then I went to the uh, championships and my girlfriend got to see me run. She knew that it was really important to me. Uh, and I believe her quote was, how can someone who moves through life so slowly move so fast physically? <laughs> Uh, for anyone who's ever had a meeting for me, then has been waiting 20 minutes while I show up. Uh, yeah, and, um, and then I went to the uh, Wellington uh, finals in the 400 meter and in the relay and in the sprint. Uh, and I uh, was running for my team uh, for St. Bernard's and I tore both my quads <laughs> uh, while I was running. Still had a busted ankle that hadn't properly healed, um, but I tore both my quads, which really sucks when your school has stairs. Uh, and I took that as a sign. Like I'd won my senior school championship. Uh, maybe this, is, this was just as far as athletics went, or just my seriousness for sports. And I knuckled down, and I started. I remember I had to study. I had to, and I got a B bursary. It was supposed to be an A bursary, but it turns out that no one in New Zealand studies art history, so I got scaled down uh, from an A to a C, which I was still angry about. I, was like, I deserved that A, but I was in uni. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, in uni, uh, it's a very quick epilogue, which ties us all together. Uh, I <laughs> didn't end up doing law. Uh, my grandfather, whose place had always been a, a, a place where I found comfort uh, and solace and I could be myself, uh, he died uh, in uh, first year uh, of uni. Uh, and a week after he died, I did a stand-up comedy gig, uh, which was an audition for a show called Pop Comedy. Um, and I made it onto that, and that was the beginning of my comedy career. And at Pulp Comedy, I met uh, Jeremy Elwood and Michelle Accord, who are two of New Zealand's political comedians, and helped shape the way that I uh, look at politics and comedy and the way that you can express uh, one through the other. And Jeremy said to me, wait, are you James Nakise? Which was weird, because he'd never seen me perform and didn't know who the hell I was. I went, yeah. He goes, I know about you. My friend Damien is a physio. You're that idiot who ran across the motorway. <laughs> So that was my summer. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. If you've got a great story to tell or would like to hear previous episodes, you can visit us at thewatercooler.co.nz. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. This episode is produced by Alice Brine, that's me, and also hosted by stand-up comedian Alice Brine, who is also me. So make sure you get to the live show and come and see the magic happen. This show would not be possible without our founder and director, Sarah Finnegan-Walsh. Special thanks to Radio New Zealand and The Wireless for their continued support.
This podcast was brought to you by New Zealand On Air. Join us next month for more stories from The Water Cooler.